Welcome to the Symbolic Lodge of Conversation, where consciousness and curiosity interweave into discussion. This is All Square Podcast. I'm your host, R.L. Franks. Joining with me today is one of our newer fellow crafts of Rubicon Lodge, my home lodge in Waterville, Ohio. I would love to introduce you to this young Mason, whose entrepreneurial mindset is really changing the game in the world of shear sharpening. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you to Brother Tom Scott. Tom, how are you doing today? Fantastic. How are you, Rob? I'm doing quite well, Tom. Tom, how long have you been in the fraternity? Uh, shy of a year. Just shy of a year. I think it'll be October uh, of this year would be our, our one-year anniversary. Excellent. Right, Mike? We started at the same time. Uh, yeah. I yeah, think, yeah. I think it was October. Yeah. Cool. I know you and Brother Lou, who is just who is working the behind-the-scenes stuff, he's here with us in the room, that you guys have joined this path and this journey relatively at the same time, on the same day. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah cool. We both went through our uh, entered apprentice uh, at the same on the same day, and then he was uh, he got his fellow craft about a month and a half before I was able to uh, get my day scheduled. But we are uh, about on pace right now to uh, yep. hit Master Mason at the same time. It's going to be nice. It is nice. It's nice to see your guys' journeys as you guys go together in this. Now, with that... Before we go into like all the masonry stuff, everybody wants to kind of know a little bit about you. So tell me about, you know, life in Toledo, Ohio. Oh, man. I, um, I've always been here. Um, tried leaving. It didn't work out. How so? <laughs> so I, I did some, you know, traveling uh, at an early age. We uh, had a, a sales team that traveled around the U.S., <laughs> lived in hotels, and um, went door-to-door selling magazines as a as an effort to get over our fears of public speaking and phobias. Actually, it, it really was a job to sell magazines, but the, um, the sales pitch was, uh, was to, uh, help kids get over those, those fears and potentially earn some extra money for their books, uh, books in college and, and, and so on. So magazines, you say? Yeah, it, it was a blast. It was, it was short lived, but it was fun. I have to ask, and I think everybody's kind of curious, what were the magazines about? Oh, I mean, every magazine you could think of, from um, L to U.S. Weekly, we had Maxim. Um, none of the adult, inappropriate magazines. They were just your regular old stuff you'd find at the barbershop-style magazines. Um, so the way it worked is we'd go around, and uh, each magazine would have a point value. So we weren't selling it based on its monetary value. We were selling it based on its points. And then uh, whichever one of the people from our sales team earned enough points uh, first, actually got a $2,000 bonus. And then the person with the top points each year got sent on a free $5,000 trip. So they would go to like London, Paris, Rome. There was all these different trips they could choose from. But only one out of like 500 kids would actually get the opportunity because it had to be the whoever sold the most in the company. So with that, um, you're doing this and you're selling these magazines for like an agency. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. You know what I'm saying. Okay. So how much was, uh, how big was your team? Oh, well, my first one was seven or eight people. And then we merged with a slightly larger team. Um, by the time I left the crew, I think there were 30 people on the one crew I was on. Uh, we were, we were taking over entire floors of hotels for weeks on end. And, with this um, opportunity that you were uh, presented with getting into the sales game, I mean, is this your start into sales? It was. It was kind of like my my uh, introduction to the, the, the fast pace, you know, salesmanship kind of thing. Um, I came home and, and, you know, kind of picked up where I left off, um, did some more uh, door-to-door sales. Um, ran some canvassing teams, started some telemarketing offices. Um, pretty much everything's been more of the guerrilla marketing style uh, jobs. I like you know, you know getting out there and, and meeting new people. Um, going door to door was always fun for me. I actually enjoyed it, and I even enjoyed teaching other people how to do it. So training kids how to go out there and, and break the ice and get to know the homeowners. I mean, that was was one actually one of the funnest things I have done in my some of my previous careers what year did this happen like what's the timeline 
Because you're not an older guy. You're not an I'm old 40. guy. You're well, 40s young. Come on, now. I mean, I'm 33 here. That's fair. That's fair. So, let's see. I was 18-ish, maybe 19, when I was first uh, introduced to the magazine industry. I spent two years out there, a little over. Um, and then uh, when I came home, it was actually steaks. Steaks are the next thing. Steaks. So you go steaks. from magazines, you're going all around. Did you say the country for those magazines? All over the country. Okay. You're going to hotels, you're going to all these places, you're just hopping from one place to the other. Yep. You got it to get, crew. Get to see whatever we want, go yep. visit wherever we want. Building building people in the streets, the world of street sales. Yep. Wow. And Absolutely. then you come back home. Yep. And you are starting the slinging steaks. Door to door steak, chicken, and seafood delivery. And how many people were a part of that team? Oh, man. I've, there's several companies over the years, and all of them had fluctuating numbers of employees. I mean, there's really no way to determine, you know, who and what. And it, it really is not a team-based business. Um, there were um, normally two people in a truck, and uh, the, the process was kind of unique. Uh, you'd show up for work that day. They'd assign two people to a truck. They'd put a freezer in that truck. They'd fill that freezer with the meat. And then you would go out and uh, you would do your, you know, give them hell kind of day and sell a bunch of meat. And whatever was missing when you came back is what you owed for. So it was a really unique opportunity. You didn't have to have any upfront monies. Um, I covered my own gas at the beginning of my day, filled the truck with gas. And then I just pick how far out I'm going and start introducing myself to people and offering them a good opportunity. So this sales has been in your blood since early on. Were you always a social person, outgoing? Yeah, I think so. I um, I definitely need my uh, my downtime to um, I don't know to kind of revive to uh, recharge, regenerate. Yeah, recharge my uh, my batteries because uh, as sociable as I am. Um, I don't know. I don't really get the energy from being around big crowds. You know what I mean? So it's a, it's a really um, weird dynamic. And the older I get, the less time I have to enjoy doing. So yeah, I used to be able to do 14, 15 hour shifts where I could, you know, I was always very outgoing, charismatic at the top of my game. Now I'm pretty much in a good mood for about four hours a day. Um, <laughs> come 12 o'clock, you know, maybe one at the latest. I'm pretty much done with people. I don't want you're, to do it anymore. I get it. You're, <laughs> <laughs> you're a young man. You have a... Uh, I've known you for over the year, and I'll get into in a moment how we actually met. But you have a young family. You have a little girl named Piper. Yep. And you have your lovely wife. But also, you have a son on the way? Yeah. So, uh, we, have, uh, we have the daughter, Piper. She is uh, just turned nine. Um, and then our son on the way, um, his name is Graham and, uh, you know, obviously with a nine year gap, it is definitely something we've, uh, we, we, we weren't, we weren't prepared for. It was kind of a surprise. Um, no mistake, but certainly a surprise. Well, good for you, man. I'm yeah. so happy for that for you. Is this going to be the last one you think? Damn well better be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. If she gets herself pregnant a third time, I'm out of here. <laughs> An Irish goodbye. That's right. That's right. Well, I'll call you in a couple of years, see how things are going. Um, how me and Tom met, we're very active in the community. As I told you in my previous uh, in the previous episodes that I'm in sales for a software development company in town and my uh Tom, I see Mike and I'm now I'm thinking Tom. Tom Scott worked for Scott Sharpening Services. Um, like you said, that sales mindset, that entrepreneurial mindset. And we were at a Chamber of Commerce function in Waterville, Ohio? Yep, Waterville Chamber. Yeah. Yep. And with that, we just sat at the same table and we struck up a conversation and we've been friends ever since. Yeah, that was a, that was a nice luncheon. I believe I met you and uh, another good brother, Adam, Yeah. Uh, the same day. And it was, uh, it was definitely... Uh, Really neat to uh, see your perspective on things and, and how much energy you had. At the time, uh, the introduction I had for, for Robbie here was uh, 
was actually his sales persona, which is the bow tie sales guy. And uh, if you're lucky, none of you will ever have to see that. Um, Damn. But <laughs> the, the bow tie sales guy is, uh, um, <laughs> is a totally different person from the very laid back person you guys get to uh, experience here on the podcast. Hey, you know, you got You have to make it memorable for clients. You got to make sure you're standing up out of the people pile of all these other salespeople. So yeah, I do portray at my software de- at the software development company the bow tie sales guy, and it's wonderful. Uh, I'm not taken away from it by any means. Um, I just I, I enjoy the more relaxed version. Thank you, my brother. Because uh, at work you are all work. Yes. So this is <laughs> this we, is always we. We both have that hustling mindset. You know, you have to sell. Honestly, you're not wrong. And and those days that you don't go in there with the idea that you're going to be successful at it, you're not successful at it. So it's almost like you have to you have to put on that hat. You have to put on that bow tie yep. in order to put yourself in that mindset that, okay, it's time to do it. Exactly. I don't know. You're, you're a little too young for this one, Robbie. But <coughs> back in the 80s, there was a movie called Over the Top, and it was Sylvester Stallone. Google it, Mike Lou. I gotta. <laughs> and it's a, it was an arm wrestling movie. Oh, okay. And he was estranged to his son, and his um, his wife was dying of cancer, and so he had an opportunity to ha- take his son and drive his son across the country um, after getting out of military school. But his uh, wife's father was a, a very rich man mm-hmm. and thought that um, that you know the. The dumpy old semi-driver uh, shouldn't have rights to his own kid. What? Yes, it's it's a very deep movie. But in who's the movie, in the movie? Sylvester Stallone. Okay, so it's a great movie. But when he goes into arm wrestling, when he goes up to the to the table and he gets into position and he's ready to take on his opponent, he turns his hat around, and he explains it in the movie. It's like it's like a light switch being turned on, and it's just it's a really good representation of of what salesmen have to go through every single day to get ourselves into the mindset that it takes to go out there and 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 hammer those doors and get those no's and take those no's on the chin just knowing that sooner or later you're going to get the yes it's going to make it all pay off 100%. So you believe um, believe it or not sometimes so I sell VoIP phones in my life and for commercial businesses. Believe it or not Tom you won't believe this. People don't want to talk about their phone system unless they're having a problem with their phone system. Are you serious? I, I, I shit you not. That's crazy. <laughs> so when I'm at the farmer's market, people aren't walking around with all of their cutlery. I know that sounds weird, but like, like hundreds of people walk by on a Saturday and none of them have their bag full of their knives. I'm like, this is just not right. Let's go well, into that. It's not the America I want to live in. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go into that for a minute. So just to give some perspective to the audience watching this, your business is Scott Sharpening Service. Yeah, so it started out with knives. Mm -hmm. Um, Lots of private knife makers will offer free sharpening if you send them the knife. And uh, I learned really quickly that if, you know, you spend a certain amount of money on a knife, you're not going to, you're not going to package it up and mail it out. Just it's not going to happen. So I started to sharpen my own knives because I had a very expensive collection of knives, like some in the thousand dollar range for a single pocket knife. So, I mean, when you get into that price range, it's just, it becomes art. It's not even really a knife anymore. You know, it's more like pocket jewelry. So um, I started learning how to sharpen those on my own. And um, then I had a friend offer me some money to do his. And then another friend offered me some money to do his. And that friend was a firefighter. And he instantly went on a private page for of firefighters, and the next day I got a hundred phone calls of people that wanted their knives sharpened. And he basically created a business, um, a, a paying platform for my business. He'd monetized it overnight. Um, and then I, a lot of the other common household goods are very easy to sharpen. I mean, if you can do a knife, you can do almost anything else that you can come across in your kitchen. Hairdressing, grooming, um, shears, and clipper blades, those take uh, a very particular skill set. The machinery is expensive. The amount of time and education you need to, to know how to do it right is 
extensive and continued education is definitely recommended because there's always new techniques or new things happening in the sharpening industry that you should stay up on, especially in an industry where like groomers and stylists are spending a lot of money on their shears. Um, so what started out as, you know, a pocket knife business has grown into uh, me being the only registered shear sharpener in a little over 150 miles based on two different training databases that I'm part of. So it's it's been nice to, you know, not only create that name for myself, um, but I've had an opportunity to train with some of the most reputable people in this industry, people who've written books on sharpening in this world. So it's just a really neat, um, very um, particular market to be in. You know what I'm saying? Niche, very niche market. Of course, of yeah. course. So explain to us a little bit about the setup process. Like when you're about to sharpen a knife cutlery for a house. I mean, there's really not much to it. I, um, I, well, I have a, a special type of belt grinder that's designed for sharpening knives. Um, the biggest difference between the belt grinder I use and something you can buy at Harbor Freight is the fact that mine's variable speed. I can control the the pace of the belt, which is going to control the friction on the blade, and it's going to control on how hot that blade gets, how much metal is removed. So there's a small science down to it. When it um, and, it, and it's an expensive science because abrasives are, are getting more and more expensive on a daily basis. What started out as 50 cents a belt now cost me 350 a belt, and it's only been eight years. So the inflation rate on this market is absolutely ridiculous. Wow. Um, but that being said, um, you know, I... Basic cutlery just needs to be functional. And unless you get into some really high-end Japanese-style cutlery that has really, really fine, um, tight, you know, degrees on it, 600 grit on the average house knife is going to make it so sharp most people are scared to use it. Um, so that's, you know, the I don't have to do much to bring back a, a, a chef knife and, and make it usable again. Um, I had the pleasure of going to one of these Thursday morning networking groups. And during that each week, there's a guest speaker. And instead of listening to a 10, 15 minute presentation, I actually had the pleasure to see Scott at work inside a breakfast, uh, <laughs> local breakfast restaurant. He has his little machine and the diamond pad, these diamond pads are called, right? Um, what did I sharpen that day? Because I I've done two. You were doing shears. I was doing like shears. you had you right. had some hairdressers come in and they bring in bags of this stuff in, yeah, and yeah. he's just sitting there whittling. I so, guess it would say whittling away <laughs> at these things. And so shears are um, a, a different again a different monster altogether. Um, a hairdressing shear has technical uh, components in it that you wouldn't even imagine. There's the parts that are flat that look like they're touching that are actually not even creating contact when the blades are closed. When you think a normal pair of shears are closed, it's two pieces of metal laying up against each other. Hairdressing shears actually have a hollow grind out of the center, and the only part that makes contact is the cutting edge. So it's just little things like that that you might not know about a shear that make it, you know what I'm saying, so so very particular. So when I'm sharpening a, uh, a hairdressing or a grooming shear, my process, my setup, my work environment is exponentially different than when I'm doing a, a knife. Um, I mean, I can do a knife in my sleep now. I can do shears in my sleep now, too. But, you know, arguably, one is, you know, the 101 in the training, in the, the sharpening industry, and the other one's the, the you know, your 10,000 course that you're far superior than, than your, your basic, you know, knife sharpening situation. So my setup, I try to be a little more um, tidy. Um, there's small parts you don't want to lose, that kind of thing. It's, sure. It's, it's it's more of a pain in the butt than anything, Rob. I'm going to be honest. It's, How so? it's, it's very lucrative, but it's tedious. And these girls spend almost $1,000 on a single pair of shears. If you make one mistake, if you accidentally take the shiny 
off of this shear in the wrong spot, you'll ruin it. <laughs> so let's go into that. Let's go into that for a minute. And let's talk about the metal that's used. I mean, surely there's different grades of the metal Absolutely. that would, you know, what do shear sharpeners use? What's considered a great metal in that industry for maybe cutlery? Um, I We've talked in the past, and maybe you can enlighten also about, you know, that the old school silver cutlery that people used to have back in the day. And yeah, just go into that, so- the quality. So that actually, yeah, that came up recently in our, one of our conversations was somebody having, uh, potentially having some silverware they may have wanted sharpened. And I was thinking to myself, like, not only have I never been presented the opportunity being someone who's like, you know, addicted to silver, I'm thinking, man, I would never let anybody grind on silver. I mean, cause you're, you're that, that's weight value, silver, raw silver. That's, uh, just, it didn't seem, very logical. So I dug into it and most of the traditional silver um, that people had, you know, the, the rich people had um, were, uh, were sterling, which, you know, weren't pure as it gets, but still you would probably want to have that hammered by a jeweler as opposed to having me grind a new edge. <laughs> um, the, um, I don't know. Uh, this, the quality of steels, range you could argue i mean gosh don't don't fill a room with people who collect knives and ask what the best steel is because you're gonna have well 10 people with 10 opinions well you talk about the damascus oh steel. So, so yeah yeah tell us about that, that you hear about that often the rainbow effect i think that's what it's called i'm I remember so i'm a novice in, so uh, I'm, yeah I'll, I'll clarify so damascus being two grades of high high and or low carbon steels um they are put together in different layers and then as they're drawn out and thinned out um those layers they come to the surface but they are not visible so they actually etch these knives they dip them into a uh, into an acid and for just a quick you know a couple seconds and then they pull it out the more high carbon steel was more affected by the acid and it creates darker lines. You can see those layers showing up through the dark. So um, Damascus is, is a great product that's used on the higher end pocket knives. It's not cheap. You know, a good billet will run you 70 to 100 bucks and then you got to still get your shape out of that. So it's normally used in a higher end product. Um, the rainbow effect you're actually referring to is called a, a product called Damascus. Um, it's not very popular in the um, in the, the common world. Mostly, you only see it in the very high end knife collecting world. Um, Damascus is the same thing as Damascus uh, in its construction form, um, but it's actually using two uh, grades of titanium instead of two grades of carbon steel, uh, and then that titanium is anodized. And when titanium is anodized, it takes on different rainbow colors based on the voltage. Wow. So by having two different grades of titanium layered through each other, one voltage could change each one a different color. So was, like darker or, or lighter? One could be purple, one could be blue. I mean, it could be it's, vastly different in color. Is it, depending on where they get the, I want to say, or the metal, no. that titanium, the color can change? or Titanium has different grades. Okay. Titanium has a singular process of creating titanium. No matter what country it comes from or who puts it together, what it comes down to is just taking two separate grades of titanium, layering them, drawing them out, folding it, layering it, drawing it out, the same way you do with Damascus. A little more tedious because titanium can't get to the same temperature as you can real the normal steel because of its properties. So um, it it just takes a little more energy to get the same resolve, um, but it's also 10 times as expensive. Like, I mean, they use Tamascus for things like pocket clips and backspacers and accents on knives because a pocket clip could be worth $250 that came out of a $600 billet. So it's just it's a very expensive material, and it's it's normally only used in in uh, very high end collectible items. Yeah, and I've never seen it in anything but knives. 
Has there been anything that, you know, your line of work that you won't do besides, like, that traditional silverware cutlery? Is there any other thing? Oh, yeah, thing? pinking shears. What's pinking shears? They're used mainly by, um... Uh, Is pinking shears? Pinking, yep. Pinking, pinking okay. Shears. Yeah, they are... Um, tailors are pretty much the only place I see them. Dressmakers, that kind of thing. Um, they basically, the, um, blades have triangle teeth on them. Okay. So when they cut the fabric, they leave a triangle taper on the edge, which I don't know if it prevents fraying or what its actual intent or goal is, but apparently it's, you know, sought after by people who make clothing and they always want them sharpened and they have a very poor success rate. Um, and Honestly, I only know like three or four sharpeners who even say yes to them. So I've I've attempted them in the past. I haven't gotten their, um, re, you know, I haven't gotten the result I was looking for. And if I don't, I don't charge people. I, I don't like taking people's money, and especially if I haven't earned it. So if I spend an hour on a pair of shears and they don't work, I don't consider that an hour lost. I consider that a pair of shears not working, and I I don't charge for that, which is probably not the best thing, but. Um, at the end of the day, I've spent way too many times trying to sharpen pinking shears that did not provide the results they needed to. And I've lost a lot of hours sure. um, giving something back that I wasn't happy with. So sure. And I think it just makes it easier to turn it down. Right. And yeah. I think a lot of people would appreciate that honesty as well. Right. You're just saying, look, I tried my best with this. I don't feel like that. You know, in sales, all we have is our reputations. Yeah. And if you go around trying to make the quick buck instead of trying to uh, provide them that solution and you get all sales breathy on it, you know, that, that reputation be damaged. And Toledo, the glass city, it's a big little town. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Yeah. That's the best way to put it. It really is. It is like everybody knows everybody through, you know, at least two degrees of separation. I like to say we call that method you're referring to the old hook and crook method. Hook and crook, yeah, absolutely. That's right, and it's uh, oh, it, it doesn't even have a place anymore in society. Like it almost was acceptable at one point, <laughs> and now it's just no one wants to even, no one wants to even deal with it. On, on all honesty, I can't count the number of times Rob that people have said, you know, you should sell cars. Like <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I hear that. It's my, I know you get it. I know. <laughs> You should get into real estate. Man. <laughs> like, I do not. Nothing against car salesmen. Of course. Honestly, I know some amazing people that are car salesmen. And I know amazing realtors. That's right. <laughs> but I'll tell you what. Some of the sleaziest salesmen I've ever met have sold used cars. So it's been this weird dynamic. Like, I don't assume because you're a salesman that you're sleazy. But it's hard not to assume that a lot of used car salesmen might be sleazy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you see it portrayed in movies more That's times right. than a not. So now I don't know how to take it when people say you should sell used cars. I'm like, well, go F yourself too then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You should keep buying them. How's that? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, man. It's don't don't step over $500 long-term to make that quick 50 bucks. Ain't nothing worth it, man. Honestly, I have, I'll give up money left and right to customers, especially if it's going to, you know what I'm saying, pay out in their long run. The reality of things is if you consider it a marketing expense, <laughs> it's probably the cheapest you're going to do all year round. I mean, it costs way less to make, keep a customer happy than it does to go out and find a new one. Amen to that. That's, Amen to that. Because, you know, but, friends buy from friends, and if you take care of somebody, they're going to recommend you to their buddies who are also in, that's right. in that as well. And you take care of that, you're set. It takes a couple years. Hey, I, trust me, I always believe, and it's a traditional uh, way of thinking for sales, all those no's is I'm getting quicker to that yes. Oh, yeah. So... I've hired and trained a lot of salespeople, and, and honestly, I, I, man, I, I feel like we're completely pivoting off of what your intention for this podcast. No, I was. think I think people are going to relate to this. Honestly, when it comes to to sales and marketing, and I have hired and trained, and I mean in bulk, I, we've I've done interviews of a dozen at a time, and taking them all out and train them at once, and to figure out where my three or four powerhouses were going to be. 
But the number one thing that I tell new people getting into sales is you're not a salesman until you get the word no. Salesmen, are you, rollover customers don't make you a salesman. You going out there and finding that guy that just says yes because he was waiting for the phone system dude to show up, it doesn't make you a salesman. What makes you a salesman is when he says no and you're like, but hold on. <laughs> I'll come back. I'm fine. Hey, I get it. Not now. You're busy. I'm going to put you on the calendar for two weeks. That's right. That's right. You know what I mean? So it just, I think, I think the no is what makes you that hardened. Yes. It, yeah. It hardens you. I don't you. want rollover customers. Matter of fact, I look for new, exciting, mostly psychological ways to try and get over those humps. I, I told you the other day that I have a, a trick that I use with some of my grooming people. So the majority of groomers I run into are ladies. Sure. I mean, I'd say 95% of my grooming clients are women, right? And, and not that it matters, but what do all women love? What do, what do all people love? Tell chocolate. Oh, yes. Chocolate. Everybody loves chocolate. So I'm so used to shutting people down that come in and try to sell me things because I'm just automatically, I don't even want to hear what they have to say. You know what I'm saying? I got stuff going on. I'm busy. Leave me alone. So I said, you know, light bulb moment. I started going and buying a bag of Hershey's. And then every day I take that out with me on my sales calls and I walk in and I have four or five mini Hershey bars in my hand, a little variety of them and a business card. I'm just telling them, I'm just bringing in a couple treats and I hand them directly to the girl that's already conditioned to tell me no. Those are for her. I don't care if there's kids running around. I don't care if there's a boss standing five feet behind her. Those treats are for her. Like, I just brought you a few treats and one of my business cards. <laughs> I'll see. I'll, I'll be in touch. Right. Hey, I know you're that's busy. Right. I know you're busy. I just want to introduce myself. You're obviously the person in charge around here. <laughs> you know, blow up their ego a little bit, give them a little bit of candy. And honestly, I'd say a good 40% of them catch me before I make it to my car and want to ask more about my sharpening service. At least inquire on pricing. Find out what my turnaround time is. Do I do it on site? What's it going to, how long is it going to take to get it done? Can I do anything right now while I'm on the spot? I mean, all of those questions all at once. And on it, it really has paid dividends by just, you know, approaching it differently. Because a lot of the times, those gatekeepers, those people that are sitting there at that counter, they're just, they, they know it's their job to say no. Even if their boss has never said, don't put me in any, in front of anybody I don't want to be in front of, they know that they're not supposed to, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They don't even have to, it doesn't even have to be verbalized. The person at the counter knows, like, my job is to stop from letting you get to Dave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right. You know, we've learned a lot about what you do. And I think there will be a lot of guys out here who would want to learn more about that kind of stuff. You know, switching topics just a little bit. Yeah. I want to kind of get back into that brotherhood moment. And when I say the word freemasonry what did you think about that before we met oh man honestly i thought that it was more of a union than a fraternity and when i heard masonry has such a direct tie to masonry i was like oh Stone masonry. Yeah, yeah. That must be for them, right? Like the local pipe fitters. <laughs> I would never go and try to join the local pipe fitters. I Guess why? Because it's in their name. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> so, yeah, when I heard uh, Freemasonry, I'm like, well, that certainly doesn't qualify for me. You know, like, where's the free sharpenery at? I'm going to look for this club. Right. So, <laughs> You're looking for the Sharpeners Guild. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You guys, you guys are sweet and stacking stones and shit. I just want to cut them. All right. <laughs> yeah. Because you don't see this Masonic fraternity advertised in the community. No. No. And and honestly, um, until meeting somebody passionate about it, um, you never really get the opportunity because I, I've met Masons over the years. I've been related to them. Or at least maybe some of the faux masons, you know, who like to wear the jewelry and represent. But 
none of them have even ever spoken on it before. So you had a, a fire about you when you spoke about masonry. You spoke about masonry with such passion. I wanted to learn more because it was the first time that it was presented to me with any kind of excitement. Um, and then being told in the same breath that I didn't have to be a mason to be a member. I was like, oh, wait a minute. Now we actually have something to talk about. A stone because, mason. Yeah, because now it's, yeah, a stone mason, exactly. Thanks, thanks. Because na- now it actually sounds like something that I'm I'm eligible for. Yeah. And you have such a passion for it. And the things that you're saying are, you know, right in line with, you know, what I'm looking for at my ripe age of 40. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? I mean, walk us down kind of like how that conversation was because you know we've talked about this in po- episodes after episodes masonry doesn't solicitate membership also the fraternity has not done the best job to be able to say how to become a mason we talked about last episode about to be one ask one but if you don't know you right. don't know what you don't know right and if you don't know that you're even ineligible you wouldn't know to ask or that, that it was even appropriate to ask you know what i mean um and without getting into too much um detail i don't want to you know sour the mood of this joyous podcast but um, i just i went through some um life altering things back in uh, 2007 may 24th to be exact and it was uh um uh, something that just uh you know I, I would never wish upon any other living human being um and it made me refocus a lot of my priorities um, I went from somebody who was doing a lot of couch surfing. The steak job I mentioned was a fast-paced job, got paid daily. I mean, I was a young man at 22 years old making seven, 800 bucks a day in cash. And I wasn't a drug dealer. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the clarification. I mean... But it was and, the hustle. Right, right. And I've always loved that kind of thing. You know, all a lot of my jobs, even the magazine thing, we were getting paid cash daily and we were living in hotels, traveling all over the U.S. I mean, it could, it, the perks couldn't have gotten any better for me at 19 years old, right? Um, but yeah, at, um, at, at 24, something that just should have never happened, happened. And then I realized that I was hanging out with the wrong people and I was making the wrong decisions and I was going down the wrong path and um and and you know just to yeah clarify a little bit that i I was in a situation where someone lost their life and 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 any person in the room literally could have been the victim because it was someone playing with a gun wow and um i was six inches away from the person who pulled the trigger and it just happened to be that he aimed it an accidental May I ask if I don't? He was I, he was playing with it. It was accidental, but he, being young and and inexperienced with guns, um, I don't. He wasn't. He didn't realize that it was loaded and no safety, and wow. he was expecting it to make a click, and instead it made a bang. Um, the thing is, is I you know I'll never ever quit being thankful that he didn't put the gun at my head, thinking it was that he was playing with me. You know what I'm saying? It, sure. It, it, so it was. It, it was one of those. Uh, just one of those eye-opening experiences, man. Yeah, you had yeah. the signs. All the signs so, must have aligned. I mean, it had to be a spiritual. I, I would it's lack of a better word. I would say like a spiritual renaissance inside you. It was. And the so. signs were pointing like, "Hey, I got to make a change." Is that a fair assessment? Oh, absolutely. So I, I instantly found work that would keep me from socializing <laughs> with a lot of people. I found myself spending more, wanting to spend more time at home than out in public. Um, lots of, um, you know, just re- removing myself from society and whole, <laughs> like just because I was safest. It was I was found my safe place, and I happened to be in a house with video games, right. and I could still make money. <laughs> so I'm sure. like, you know what I mean? So like, why why do I need to worry? But then I started to hate that part of life. Like I'm just stuck in these four walls all the time, not experiencing anything, not seeing life, watching it just go by. So you go from 24 to 37, 38 years old, and you're like, man, I literally just blew 14 years. But you learn from it. You learn from those. You learn from those mistakes. You learn from those being in those those positions. Absolutely. That environment. That environment shaped you. Was <laughs> hey, hey, it didn't do a damn good job shaping <laughs> me, Rob. I don't know if that's something we want to hang on. But you here. know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, but I, you know, 
all of that being said, I was at a point in my life where I was starting to take on a role in my um, professional career where I was getting back into the um, professional marketing of things, which I had done in the past. Um, I started to be more sociable and all for work-related reasons. And so when I met you, it was really a timing thing. It wasn't just a timing for, uh, for you know, like uh, hearing about the Freemasons, but I was at a point in my life where I was ready to start getting back out there and being part of life again. Mm-hmm. And you've told and me... It, and Masons have given me an opportunity to do that. How with, so? You know, the first thing is is it's so accepting on day one. The brothers are so... I've only met one so far, and he'll go unnamed. <laughs> if you're watching, you know who you are. <laughs> um, <laughs> that That isn't the friendliest of fellas. But everybody else has been the best. It's just been wonderful, accepting... And, and when you're in a position where you don't want to interact with other people, a lot of it becomes because you're not knowing how you're going to be received by those people. Um, so it's, it was nice to automatically feel so welcomed that I didn't have those questions of doubt about those people. You know what I mean? Amen. So that was my biggest thing is, is um, being able to experience that on day one. And, and that has, obviously you know just grown since then i'm barely going on a year and i feel like i have relationships with people in this uh in this lodge that you know would have taken uh, decades to develop you know something that was that meaningful so it, it it's nice to know that the the brotherhood almost creates an opportunity where you don't have to you don't have to have doubt you don't have to you know worry about the guy next to you trying to get over on you kind of scenario. Yeah, we don't care if, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not about, you know, oh, what can it do for me? Believe me, there's guys who try to say, how, you know, what can this do for me? And that's not what it's about. And I said this in the last podcast too, not to rehash things, but there's no instant gratification in this fraternity. You work towards on yourself through these degrees, through these catechisms. And to get to know you from when we just knew each other out in this as the bow tie guy and Tom <laughs> sharpening service to be able to build that brotherhood where we might have never met or at right. least we would have just kept it professionally. Correct. But there was something about you that I just I instantly gravitated towards <laughs> you. We laughed that entire freaking. Oh my goodness! Man. I thought they were going to kick us out I of really, that luncheon. We were going to get in trouble for real, and and Adam didn't help. <laughs> he did not help it at all. Um, so yeah, no, that was a that was definitely a, you know they say that you know things happen for a reason, and and honestly, that was I think we were supposed to meet that day, and and I couldn't be more thankful that we did because I'm really enjoying the the path I'm on with Freemasonry, and I'm looking forward to. Uh, to uh, continuing that, and I, I even had the discussion with my wife uh, um, about the, uh, is it an endowment? Endowment, yes. Endowment for the whole year. Uh, for I mean, a lifetime. For a lifetime, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I'm so committed, not even being, you know, at the Freemason, or at the Master Mason level yet. You know, I'm, I'm so committed to it that I'm already planning on taking that as my step, because... Honestly, I, I don't plan on just, you know, a couple years and then and then being done. I, I want to be, you know, part of this and one of those little old guys driving little Shriner vehicles or something. Or, Absolutely. You know, now maybe even a clown. Maybe, <laughs> hey. maybe even a clown. Maybe a clown, Adam. I might do it. All <laughs> this, right? Maybe. He's referring to the Zenobia Shrine clown unit. I am, yeah, sorry. And we'll do a deeper <laughs> dive into what the shrine is in more episodes to come. I want to also ask this question. You're a spiritual man, too. I mean, I'm, I, I'd like to call myself God-fearing. Okay. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, I, um, you know what I'm saying? I, I have a belief system. I I think everyone should. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, honestly, that's, yeah, Um Sure. It's, I, I I mean we everybody has their 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 topic or, or not their topic their concern or their their teetering uh, issue, but um, and my faith is 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 a, the Christian faith. I just um, mm-hmm. I, I've been more interested in doing the um, the smaller 
uh, fellowships, uh, home church style stuff. Not really into large church, large gathering, large masses still. I mean, I like interacting with people, but I don't know. I, I do not like the vibe I get at some local churches on Sunday. Right. And I just, if I pull into a driveway of any place and I get that fakeness feeling or like, I don't know, there's just something about it, man. It's I'm just saying, not a welcoming feeling. It's not. And I, I just, I feel like some of these, some of the, the bigger churches around are just, they're just so um, commercialized. And I, right. I'm, I'm being greeted because people are being told to stand there and greet people yeah, absolutely but <laughs> like, what but how beautiful is it how beautiful is it in a fraternity where it's a universal exactly. it's not a religion i nope. mean it's, it's well, not actually a co- i've met people that don't even have the same religion i mean i'm christian by faith i mean not that catholics and christians are, are too far off but right i mean catholics christians i'm I, i've met a few different um you know walks of faith um, through Freemasonry, and then because humility, I think, is the most important human trait for me um, as as people I like to interact with. Um, I don't really care what your religious beliefs are. At the end of the day, if you're humble, that means more to me than anything. And honestly, the the thing I can't stand the most is someone who can't admit their flaws. Like if you can't even say, "Hey, I, oops, I made a mistake." I mean, that's just to me that that's the the, the number one most important thing is being able to be humble enough to admit that. And yeah, I don't know. How beautiful is it for brethren to dwell together in unity? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So rounding this podcast out, you know, what are you looking forward to more in this fraternity besides driving a car or becoming a clown in the, <laughs> one of those branches? But what what more that are you looking for with these philosophies, these principles in there? That's profound. I you know, um, I think because most of what the Freemason values, um, you know, the oblig the the values that the obligation the obligate the obligatory values that you have to have to become a member are the same values that I look forward to, you know, having in other people kind of aligns, you know, with me, with the mate Freemasonry already, because that's what I expect from the average person as well. So um, it's almost nice to just know that they're already vetting (laughs) some of that for me, because, you know, the, the, the values that they expect you to have to become a member, the same thing I expect you to have to break bread with me. Um, in any scenario. Um, so I honestly, I think that's the, the best thing about it. And the thing I look forward to the most is I know that I'm going to meet hundreds of amazing people throughout this fraternity. Um, and it's going to, they're all of them are going to share those same qualities. Um, and you know, outside of somebody that might have like a little bit of a little Jersey to them or whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I think that everybody has been wonderful so far. I haven't met anybody that's really been, you know, rude or hasn't been in line with those values. Any anybody who calls themselves a Mason should welcome anybody from wherever they come from in this fraternity. And I'm Correct. so excited. And I have to say this: I am so honored, just like I am with Brother Lou that I'm your mentor in this as well and you guys have been coming through together. Oh yeah. It's been a blast. And we and I and I, you know, I I like to say I can speak for both of us but even just for myself I know that I appreciate it uh knowing that there's somebody who um that I uh, can kind of lean on when it comes to having those questions about Freemasonry, you know, cuz there's still a lot of unanswered things and you, you guys still haven't told me all the the secrets of how to live forever and stuff like that. So <laughs> well um, yeah continue (laughs) so no it's it's nice to you know have uh, a mentor and and honestly um you know one thing that you know i I hope i'm not giving too much away you know but being candid um there's obviously some text that we have to memorize Mm -hmm. through different stages examination book so it was 
it's comforting for me to know that there are people in my um, in my age demographic or even close that um, are going through those traditional paces and learning all those things um, because I was surprised to find out how many people made it through the the master masons having not went that traditional route of course um, so it's it's nice to have you know uh, someone that I can lean on because I kind of want to do it the traditional way. So I get the most out of it. And I'll I'll give a point of clarification for that. Um, I was trying to be candid. No, that's so fine. And it's totally fine. So there's so we talked about the catechisms and exams. Um, in Ohio Freemasonry, not lately over the last couple of years, things change. And each year, depending on who's the head of the state, does different requirements to be a Mason. But there's always something called the traditional exam. Or the traditional catechism, we have to uh, learn that dialogue and work with your craftsmen. There's also been, um, over the last couple of years, one-day classes where um, men who may not have the best memory retention or just didn't have the time, they could be a made a Mason in one day. Ohio Masonry is not doing that this year, and they're not doing that for the next couple of years because we were doing it so much. And... Um, guys wanted to go back to that so there was many different routes to become a mason uh in there and you had the choice it's going back to where guys our age want to get back to the traditional examination so and absolutely not taking anything away from any of uh, any of the amazing masons who did the one day option because honestly uh, there was a few times as i was going through the process that i was like you know maybe i should just go ahead and take that one day option so I totally get it, but you know, it's still. I, I don't think if I had didn't have you to actually um, be able to lean on um, for the sake of learning it, I probably would have folded sooner or just joined in with the notion that I was going to take that quick route um, because it is it is a um, it is a process. Um, but I think that at the end of the day, that what you get out of the process, um, it, it's just like Freemasonry as a full, as a whole body. Um, what you put in is what you get out, right? Amen. So, um, going this route, I think, I don't think it's going to shortchange anything for me. I think it's just going to, um, make things even a little more exciting along the way. Thank you. Yeah. We're all brothers on the level. Right, Tom, I can't thank you enough for just your time to be able to talk to you today and give your journey. That's the point of this podcast is to yeah. hear from brethren from all walks of life. Any last words you want to say? Um, you know, just edit out some of the crap because you, <laughs> I just feel like I might have said some things I didn't need to say. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, it's raw, it's real. You know, the thing. We used to stop. Tom. No, we're good. Um, I, I honestly, I just want to say thanks for having me on. Uh, this was kind of impromptu. Most of you may not realize, but I was invited over for cigars, and then they set me in this chair and put a microphone in front of me. <laughs> Bait and switch. And, the old crooked And all of a sudden, they have their third episode for their All Square podcast, and I'm sitting over here like, can I get that pop now? So, <laughs> Um, it's, it's, it's been fun. It really has. Thanks it, for having me. It really has. That's Tom Scott. We have Michael Lou in the room. I'm Rob, I'm Robbie Franks and you are all square.